we just had the Final Four, and what a Final Four it was. But the best week on the sports calendar continues with the Masters this week. With my partner, PJ Glasser, I'm Joe Malvin. This is episode 44 of the Glasser Joe podcast. And to recap the Final Four a little bit, to talk Masters, and to start looking ahead to the NFL draft, we have our esteemed guest for the third time in Glasser Joe history, Pete Haley. For the third time, we are pleased to be joined by Washington football team reporter for NBC Sports Washington and TikTok sensation, Pete Haley. Pete, how you doing? Uh, I want to be a TikTok sensation so bad and like make $100,000 for every gambling post I'm, I post. But uh, it seems to be a, quite far off in the distance, but I appreciate you setting that up. And for anyone listening, might as well put it out right now. At Pete's Player Props on TikToks. Are we, getting a, are we getting a PPP for the Masters? uh sadly those things take a long time to edit mm. and most importantly i am like oh and seven in my last seven <laughs> picks so i'm really trying to space but them you out know so what the- yeah, you it means you're due so you, you <laughs> might as well take a crack at it dude you think you would think i'm due and then i just keep making doo-doo picks and it's just really sad and people <laughs> give me so much crap and it beats me down i need like a month to recover so I'll probably have PPP for like the U.S. Open. That'll be the next one I post. But Fair. I appreciate you guys plugging that anyway. Fair. Absolutely. Right. We're going to get to the Masters. But before that, uh, before we officially started the segment, uh, we were just chatting off the air about where I am now in my locale. So a reminder for the listeners uh, or anybody who's new, I'm back down in Florida now for my job. On the drive from my home in Jersey, we were passing through Virginia, and we happened to be tuned into 106.7 The Fan as it was in our range. On the little show called uh, JP and B Mitch, there was a guest by the name of Pete Haley. And Pete, I caught your 20 questions segment with TJ Duckett. And I just want to say before we get to our real topics here, I did get it very early on. So I was very proud of myself for that. What was the clue that cinched it for you? The clue that cinched it. Uh, so Doug Cameron was a guest during that, the weatherman for Channel 4 in DC. <laughs> and there was a question that he asked. Because he was just like rambling in the background a little bit. There was right. a question that he asked that you answered, but then B. Mitch and JP kind of like brushed past it. I don't remember what it was now, but there was something that he asked. And I'm like, why are they not honing in on that more? And it kind of gave it away. I was thinking like Duckett. I was thinking uh, Liddell Betts, like that kind of category, sure. but I settled on TJ Duckett. So yeah, I was it, proud it, of that. Wanted to let you know that I was listening in and it was a good segment. <laughs> it's a really fun segment. Some weeks are better than others. Sometimes they get done in like three questions. Sometimes they make it to like number 19. It's a fun time. I'm glad you listened and congrats on getting TJ Duckett. Are you just yeah, that's completely a good random Washington football Legendary team Legendary Atlanta season. Falcon. The <laughs> biggest arms, I think, of any running back I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and there you go, TJ Duckett, a name that I probably <laughs> hadn't heard in like five years. A name we hear very often who also has large arms is Bryson DeChambeau. He'll be playing at the Masters this week. Uh, where does Masters Sunday rank on your favorite sports days of the year? It's, it's top three for sure. I mean, Super Bowl Sunday, Masters Sunday, and then maybe like the March Madness Thursday-Friday combo. Mm-hmm. I like have a weird inverse thing with March Madness where I get less interested the more it goes on just because I love having – games everywhere but master sunday i think it's probably number two behind the super bowl it's just so much fun you wake up you even watch the scrubs who are like two under tee off at 11 a.m so you can get a feel for the course see which holes are playing hard which are difficult so you can see where the competitors near 2 3 p.m are going to need to take advantage so i love it can't wait and uh yeah bryson's up there but i think my pick this week is rory hope i didn't spoil a segment there oh rory's the guy for me 
<laughs> I like it. Uh, now, Pete, if I were to tol- tell you that you could play the Masters one time and you could have your group of three other people with you, it can be family, friends, athletes, movie stars. I don't want to put you on the spot, but maybe at some point in your life you've thought about this. Who would your playing partners be? God, you are putting me on the spot. Uh, I'm a huge Ricky Fowler fan. We've covered that in, I think, yeah. my previous two appearances. That'd be the only way to get to Augusta this week. Exactly. He nice. would have to be invited <laughs> by Pete Haley because he's just forgotten how to play golf. Um, <laughs> he would definitely be in there. Oh, my God. PJ, that's maybe the greatest question I've ever been asked. Mike I mean, Greenberg <laughs> had a lot of trouble with this, too, when we had Greeny on the show. I figured you'd have a football player, and like maybe Tressway, because I just know you love him from your pods, <laughs> or somebody like that would be so personable but also be a good golfer. Actually, and huge name drop there by you, Joe. Way to casually just slip that in there. You had Mike Greenberg on the show, and I <laughs> dumb Pete Haley in this girlfriend's apartment. Um, I think Santana Moss would be in there because I've known hmm. Santana. This is me name dropping. He's been my favorite player of all time. He's very, very approachable, very cool. And he started to play golf a little bit, so I think he'd be fun. I would just love to hear stories from, like, the 2007 Washington football team era about Sean Taylor, Clinton Portis, Tana, Ricky Fowler, me. And then this is kind of lame, but I'll take J.P. Finley, my buddy from work. We, me and him just get along. I know love that he's it. fun on the golf course. He's always calling over the cart girl, getting around to – beers or transfusions for the squad he's he's terrible at golf like me so i can kind of lean on him while ricky's shooting like a 72 me and jp could shoot in triple digits so i think that's my group i don't know if that's the best group and if you ask me in like five hours i probably regret all three of those choices but right here right now ricky tana jp and pete teeing off at augusta and, and tearing that course up that's a solid group yeah greedy went deep with it i mean he, he was like, like gandhi like, and i'm like, like Van i don't <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It was... he, went, he went way deep. He did. But, like, hey, that, that's the beauty of the question is, like, you could take it any way because the way P.J. framed it, he was like, that time I think, P.J., you had mentioned, like, historical figure, celebrity, athlete, whoever. And he took it as, like, he picked, like, an old president. He picked, like, Van Gogh, I think. Like, it was just way, oh, way off yeah. the board. Way off Such the board. a boring foursome. You can ask Van Gogh <laughs> about losing an ear and painting dumb screen paintings. I'll, I'll just ask you, sorry if you already covered in your previous episode, just give me your top seed, both of you. One, The one guy you'd have in your foursome. Not the full one foursome, guy. but the one guy you'd have Ooh. to have. Man. Mm. Yeah, Dwayne see. Johnson. Wayne They'd probably pound the ball down the fairway. <laughs> um, my top guy would probably be Greg McElroy, uh, uh, Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne. Any of those guys? Any Bama boys? No. See, I I, <laughs> I was Saban. thinking of I was thinking of Bama guy. I mean, I'd probably go Nate Oates honestly over wow. over Saban. I think yeah, I think for, I think they would be wow. a lot of fun. I, I go the Rock because like I grew up and still am a big WWE fan. Like my grandparents, Italian immigrants, how they got into it, I don't know. But they were huge fans, got me and my brother into it. So grew up watching them, loved the movies, charismatic, fun guy. It'd be a, it'd be a fun day. A so fun Joe day. took the biggest movie star in the world and a huge wrestler. And PJ took an Alabama basketball coach who's in his second year. It's like brought the program <laughs> to respectable heights, but nowhere near the top. Like that's just amazing. That's why that question is so good because you can just <laughs> get answers from everybody. And they're you really all over the can. Map. You really can. Now, you mentioned how much you love Ricky. So because he's not in it, who would you say you're pulling for? Is it Rory because you're going to bet him to win? Uh, Rory would be cool to see him complete the slam. But I think Justin Thomas, like I have Ricky as my favorite golfer, but Thomas is my favorite good golfer. I just love his swing, love how solid he is all around the course. And he just seems pretty likable. And he's kind of sneaky on like 
a very good trajectory in terms of the all-time grade. So I think Justin is probably the guy I'm pulling for most. And then it'd be cool to see like an old classic like Phil Mickelson win. I don't think he can. But uh, Justin and Rory are my two top 10 plays this week. I don't love John Rahm, but I think he's going to do pretty well this week too. So those are the three guys I'm keeping eyes on. And now are you buying the Spieth hype or is it too much of a public bet now? This is something PJ and I have gone back and forth on. I've been saying Spieth for a month and a half and now I'm off it. Like I was rooting for him to lose at Valero so I could still stay on him, but then he won and that was it. Yeah, I think all three of us are jumping off the Spieth boat then because, you know, I heard Steve Sands on the Sports Junkies today. I think two guys since, you know, the 60s or something have won the week before and then won the Masters. It was Sandy Lyle and then somebody in the 2000s. Like, it's just so hard to do. So I think I'm going to let all the all the squares jump on Spieth. I think he can finish well. I mean, he's, he's right. good at Augusta and he can finish top 10, top 20. I'd take a prop on him there, maybe first round leader. But in terms of wearing another green jacket on Sunday, I'm going to stay far, far away from old Giordo. And now, what do you think would be the cooler story? Would it be Rory completing the slam, or would it be DJ doing something that will probably never again be done, which is winning the Masters twice in six months? I think it's that, because it's you hear how different the course is. In November, you can go 20 under, and then they're going to like try and dust and proof this course. I don't think Augusta liked that somebody could go 20 under there in November. So they're going to make the green super slick. They're going to make it very hard to get to like 10, 12 under. So if Dustin can win at the same course, at the same kind of top-level field, but with two different styles, two different scoring types. I think that'd be a very cool story. I mean, Rory's going to have 20 more Masters to try and win it, but in terms of going November to April, that will never be done again, probably, unless COVID-19 turns into COVID-30 and we deal with it in another decade. So DJ doing it. I know, I'm sorry. You should probably edit that out. But DJ going back-to-back within six, seven months would be baller status. It would be. I'm glad we were talking about this too, Joe and I, back in November. We were much like Kershaw to win the World Series. We were glad to see DJ win because he's one of the great golfers of all time. And that was really what he was missing was a Masters. And now he won it. We'll see if he can repeat. Moving on to football now, Pete. Uh, the team you cover has had a busy offseason. Fitzmagic, Curtis Samuel. Which signing got you more excited? I'm going to go off the board and take William Jackson the third. I think Ooh. he's the least known because he played in Cincy. He's a corner versus a quarterback. It's magic. Everybody knows him. And Curtis Samuel ties to the old coaching staff. They're here now in Washington. He's a receiver, but I think William Jackson is a dude who can thrive in this new defense with the D line with Kendall Fuller across from him, hopefully decent safety is behind him. And I think he can have a huge impact. I mean, Ron Rivera is talking about using him to shadow the best receiver. He's got elite speed, really long arms. He's, he's a baller. And I think uh, come 2023 when all these guys have kind of had a couple years to play through their contracts Curtis Samuel's going to be great he can do a lot and I think Fitzpatrick could be a guy who sticks around for two years not just one but William Jackson third appears to be on the most ascending curve of those three it can be a real lockdown corner so Ron Rivera is known as being a cornerback whisperer and I think he's going to start whispering to William Jackson those two are going to make sweet sweet music together they got a shot I mean they've got some pieces in place to turn some heads and still a very weak division I mean, the other team's have certain good qualities about them, but none of them are complete teams. You can make the case that with the additions, Washington is the most complete team in the division, but still a lot to be determined in April in the draft. And with saying that, who is your draft crush that you hope is there at 19? 
So before they signed Adam Humphreys, I was still into them drafting a receiver to give Tur- uh, Terry and Curtis Samuel a third option. But I think they're probably set at receiver at number 19. So I think any of these linebackers, Zayvon Collins or the guy from Notre Dame, whose name is very hard to pronounce, um, <laughs> could really complete this defense because they're they're pretty set in the secondary. Maybe Landon Collins is somebody you want to improve on. But you got three of the four spots set there, and then your D-line is all world-class. So if you can get a rangy linebacker and run sideline to sideline, can cover – can pressure the quarterback and tackle in the run game. I think you can sit there at 19, but I mean, we kicked around on our podcast about bumping up to number four with the Falcons or maybe waiting and seeing. And if a guy like Trey Lance, Justin Fields falls to number 10, do you go up? And if they like a quarterback and want to trade up there, I would have no problem with it because if this rebuild continues on the, on the path it's on, you might have the 24th pick next year. Who's to say that this isn't your best chance. People say 19 isn't great draft capital, but compared to what you could have in the future, it might be your best shot. So uh, if they stay at 19, go get a linebacker, complete the defense. But if they feel like they can trade up and get a quarterback, um, let him grow behind Fitzpatrick, not have to rush this thing for once. And that'd be a really appealing outcome in April too. And to pull on that thread a little bit, um, considering how much it would probably cost them to get up and knowing that it's going to probably go Lawrence Wilson, Mac Jones or Justin Fields, you know, and probably before the top 10 is over, Trey Lance is probably off. All five of them are probably off the board in the top 10. Under that assumption, is there anybody from that second cut of guys that you would like to see them get in the second round to, to go ahead and throw behind Fitzpatrick? Yeah. I mean, Kyle Trask, a dude from Florida who played in the toughest conference in college football and put up some really nice numbers. I think he could be a good guy too. Davis Mills from Stanford is somebody me and Mitch Tisch are like, just because he seems to have, the tools and maybe not the numbers, but that could be a third round guy. Um, I think they're in a, actually a decent spot with quarterback with Fitzpatrick and Heineke. I think they can be your like layers of protection over whatever QB you take. If you do take one, whether it's you trade up and get a guy like Lance, who's uh, unpolished, but has huge potential or a second or third round guy that probably isn't ready to play in the NFL. Those two can act as the, the, the initial layers, let them play out this year. And then next year you figure out, okay, how does this draft pick whoever we took, figure into the long-term plan. So I'm, I mean, I almost, I'm torn because I love the idea of playing Fitzpatrick this year. I think he's got a lot of good football still ahead of him, which is crazy to say about a guy nearing 40, but you see what he's done in Miami. He's, he's improving late in his career. So if they end up just not doing anything and they roll with Fitzpatrick, I think they can make the playoffs this year, but if you have Fitzpatrick for the short term and find a potential long-term option, then I think you're cooking with some serious gas. When you look at the draft, who's the guy who you just think is going to be like the safest pick, the least bust potential? Is it Trevor or is it is it somebody else towards the top? I think it's Kyle Pitts. I mean, a lot of people who are smarter than me are saying he can play receiver, he can play tight end, his arm span. I mean, he can freaking tie his shoes standing up. It just <laughs> You look at, I mean, Diana Rossini's tweeting how every coach and GM has a favorite play and they geek out whenever they talk about Kyle Pitts. So it's odd to have a tight end. Uh, so well regarded. Chris Cooley says he can't remember a time a tight end was so well regarded. Maybe cut, maybe Kellen Winslow, which was 2005, I think. That's a decade and a half. So I think he's the safest because quarterbacks, as good as Trevor Lawrence could be, as good as Zach Wilson could be, it's so much about the environment. And I think enough studies have been done looking back. They're basically a first-round quarterback, a 50-50 proposition, no mm-hmm. matter you take them one or you take them 13. So um, I think a tight end like Kyle Pitts in today's NFL where it's becoming – so positionless and it's about so much uh, matchup issues. I think he's probably the safest pick and whoever gets him, whether it's Atlanta at four or, you know, Miami at six, whoever, I think they're going to be very, very happy 
in 2030 when he's got seven Pro Bowls and is like the next Travis Kelsey. Pitts is he's ridiculous. He's, he's unbelievable. Um, Pete, when you're watching the draft, we all love the first night, right? The first round, even though it takes four hours, it's just exciting because football fans know the players. Second day is exciting too. Second, third round, you still have heard most of the guys. But then what's the point for you when you're watching the draft on day three where it just kind of drags on, where really Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay are the only people that have heard of any of these players? For me, it's like the fifth round. So, like, first round's fun. And actually, that would probably make my top five of sports days, the first round yes, of the draft. Yes, I would agree. There's trades. It just feels like football is kind of approaching, and it's so fun to imagine, right, this guy we drafted him, how's he going to fit in, et cetera. Second and third round, really fun too. Uh, you still feel like you know a bunch of the guys. And then you kind of – second and third round's done. You see Mel Kuyper's top ten. You're like, all right, that's a quarterback I know. That's a running back who maybe fell because of this issue. Come right. the fifth or sixth round, that's when punters start coming <laughs> off the board. That's when, like, it's a guard from Indiana who played <laughs> behind some other guard that transferred. And it just becomes – so I wouldn't say boring because you, you get stories like this dude was really good at a Rubik's cube. Like they Washington draft Antonio Gandy golden last year. And they did a whole package on how he's a good bowler can do a Rubik's cube. But eventually it's like, all right, let's let's three minutes here. Every pick, let's get this <laughs> over with. So Saturday come like three, 4 PM. You're just running on fumes. You stayed up late recording podcasts, writing stories. And that's when you're like, all right, I'm ready for minicamp to see these dudes in their weird Jersey numbers trying to make this roster. So it's a great question. And I'm done usually around round five. That's, yeah. that's about where I think last year it held me on a little bit longer because that I was the only thing some, on that we had, I, had for I was going to say it was the only thing on and I was waiting to see some Maryland guys come off the board. So it held me around a little bit longer last year, but come the fifth, maybe you push it to the end of the fifth round. I'm starting to channel surf a little bit and then I'll get the alerts <laughs> from Schefter. If anything sure. colossal happens, you know, um, yeah. Now, last one before we get to the Swift Seven and the trivia, as you know, veteran of the pod now three times. Uh, Gonzaga UCLA was one of the, if not the best college hoop games of all time, one of the best sporting events we've ever seen, period. Uh, when I ask you what your favorite game in any sport of all time is, what's the first game or two that starts to kind of generate in your mind's eye? You guys are going to have to start sending me some show rundowns like before I come on. I mean, <laughs> I need better answers than just being thrown these impossible questions. But, but that's the best because when you're on the spot, exactly, you just say sure. whatever comes to mind first. And sure. that's your truest one. It's like the if you're decide, if you're having like the Friends episode, if you were a Friends fan, like when you're having trouble between deciding two things, you go like hot, cold, green, sure. or like what's your favorite color? You go, you go quick, 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 and you get your favorite one. All right. So when I was growing up, 2012 was a huge year for me as a Washington fan. It was RG3. And when they went to Dallas, beat the hell out of Dallas, they scored, I think RG3 threw three or four touchdowns in the first half, ended the half with just a sick rollout to Santana Moss, back of the end zone, toe tap. Dallas came back a little bit, but they they closed it out. RG3 found Niles Paul for a touchdown. I think the game was 38-28. Knowing that Washington that day was on national TV they were setting the tone. People were having to react to them and their offense instead of Washington having to catch up to others. That just felt like, wow, this is what it's like to root for just a dominant cutting edge franchise. And it was a euphoria that I really hadn't known as a Burgundy and Gold supporter very often. So 2012, the whole year was really special. But in terms of my just personal, my favorite game, I think Thanksgiving, going to Jerry World and just stomping on Tony Romo and all those 
a-holes from Dallas was really, really cool. Because all my family all day was talking about, I can't wait for 4.30. I want to see your team. And that's just not how Washington fans have grown up. They, they always want to be the ones who are hidden away in the 1 o'clock slot. For once, being on primetime worked out. Um, so that's, that's probably my most personal choice. TJ, while we're on it, what's yours? My, so my top three, I was thinking about this. My top three, the Gonzaga-UCLA game is up there. Boise State-Oklahoma Fiesta Bowl. I don't know if you remember that game with the hook and ladder and the statue Ian Johnson proposing to his girlfriend after. That is still the best college football game I've ever seen. And then the other one would be Rangers-Cardinals Game 6 World Series when the Cardinals were down to their last strike two different times. Freeze, hit, the ball to right, then he hits the walk-off. Still the greatest baseball game I've ever. So those are the three best, but UCLA-Gonzaga might be the best. I was I went to work the next day and I was actually talking to Mitch Tischler and I'm like you know what made that game so good is usually in every basketball game there's a little lull like you have a two three minute lull where a team's not scoring there was no lull in that game. No lull. every every minute of that game there were buckets it was so good and the finish was was ridiculous so it might that, be a recency my- it might be a recency bias but I'd probably say that's in my top three in addition to. Uh, Cubs Indians World Series Game Seven, 2016. That's going. And I uh, probably would have to say that the Bama Georgia National Title Game is on there. And I thought PJ yep. would go that route as well. So that's a good yeah. one. I was actually that's the best game I've ever attended. That that was yeah. a fun one. The thing about that game, the second half and overtime were amazing, but the first half wasn't very good. But it was it was an exciting finish. That's sure. true. All right. Well, on to the Swift Seven, Pete. You're ready. Uh, yes. True or false, the Washington football team will regret opting for Fitzmagic over Sam Darnold. I'm higher than on Darnold than most. And I think Washington's assembled a pretty good supporting cast that would have helped Darnold. But um, getting Fitzmagic for one or two years at a pretty cheap cost versus having to commit Darnold at 20-some million if he plays well this year, I think it is false. They are going to be happy with Ryan. And uh, I love the addition of him. I'm higher on the old Wiley veteran than almost everybody I've talked to just because I think what he did in Miami is very replicable. He's got a really good defense, some really good receivers, and I think he can take into the playoffs. No problem in 2021. All right. Number two, bear with me on this one. It's a long one, but you'll get it. Uh, If someone offered you a million dollars to birdie the par three 12th at Augusta at least one time in 10 tries, but if you didn't get a single birdie, you're not allowed to watch football for the rest of your life. Would you take the chance? <laughs> Would you take the chance? So here's the thing. Do you guys know the course renditions in Maryland? Uh, I've mm-hmm. heard of it. Yes, yes. So they have – it's it's this Amen Corner course. Right. right. They have replicas of famous holes. So they have the 17th at Sawgrass. They have Amen Corner. They have, like, holes from St. Andrews. And I buried the 12th, the replica of it, on my first trip there. You know, hit a, hit a wedge shot to, like, 20 feet was just hammered on Coors Light told Mitch Tischler we were playing together I was like I'm gonna walk this in and as soon as I putted I Kevin nodded I beat the hole beat the ball to the hole and just picked it up so I think based on that experience I have enough confidence to go to the real 12th hole 10 tries oh definitely I can hit it the green maybe four times maybe play the slope right and I can knock one in so I take that absolutely yeah. give me the a million and I don't even care about risking football because I feel that good wow. about wow Pete, I would have thrown the golf bag in the river. I would have retired from golf after that right there. (laughs) It felt so, so, so cool to say, Mitch, I'm going to walk this in. And to actually do it, it's just a a moment I'll never be able to do. Did that course – 
that was a no lose situation for you because even if you didn't walk it in, you could have just chalked it up to being drunk and yeah. would have never thought about it again. Right. Do you I, think that course did it did it really look like I mean it obviously wasn't exactly the same, but did they do a pretty good job? Dude, I mean, it was kind of gray. It was in November. It was like a turkey open type deal. So, you know, no, you couldn't escape the fact that you're still in Maryland, but I mean, it's pretty exact. I mean, they have the bridge. I the sawgrass hole, I played real sawgrass because I'm a big shot. And then the sawgrass hole in Maryland was pretty damn exact. I mean, if you if you can just kind of forget you're in the East Coast. And in the what's Maryland's the Keystone State? I have no idea. I live that's here. Pennsylvania. No <laughs> okay, that's embarrassing. I've had a couple of Long Island iced teas today, so I'm sorry. Um, yes, it's it's definitely worth a shot. Anytime you're around there, it's a it's a good time. And I think it was pretty damn close to what Augusta actually is. All so right. yeah, I, I take your bet, and I have the utmost confidence I'll succeed. Nice. Not an answer I was expecting, but an incredible <laughs> one nonetheless. Number three, who was the draft pick from the Washington Football Team during your lifetime? that made you groan the loudest at the time of the pick? Like you absolutely did not want the guy. Whew. Um, trying to look back. I mean, in 2008, they took Devin Thomas, Malcolm Kelly, and Fred Davis, Michigan State wideout, Oklahoma wideout, and a tight end from USC all in the second round. And I was thinking to myself, I was like 15. I was like, this seems too good to be true. Why are all these guys available? Why are they just ripping off these dudes one after one after one? And it turned out all of them were garbage. Fred Davis was the best. And he got, you know, he had his best years, like 50 catches for 600 yards. Malcolm Kelly had one long catch in his entire career. And Devin Thomas turned out to be like a model and a F-list actor. So all those dudes, me growing up, I was like, "Eh, this seems too good to be true. And then Dwayne Haskins, I really wanted to believe in him in 2019, but when they drafted him and he kind of had this like sourpuss look and he was at a bowling alley and he, he apparently he was making people pay to get into this bowling alley draft party. You don't want to judge a guy right off the bat, but that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So from 2008 as a fan to 2019 as a reporter, those two bookends were both kind of gave me just a, yeah. And I turned out to be right. I'm not right all the time with this team, but those I trust my instinct and I turned out to be pretty correct. There you go. Uh, number four, you JP B Mitch, Mitch Tischler rank the four from worst golfer to best B Mitch easily the best he has. And I'm hope he doesn't listen to this cause he'll kick my ass. And he always kicks my ass. <laughs> he has a horrific swing. It's not, it's not Barkley something I'll ever teach. It's, it's not, not Barkley bad, but it's, he has the longest backswing. The club like hits his left rib cage <laughs> on the way, but the ball explodes. He has that two tier ball flight you love. And he's a money putter after that. Me, Mitch, and JP are all pretty equal on any given day. I would say JP has the – the like, if you just wanted to bet on somebody shooting a 92, JP is probably <laughs> your best bet. Like, he could shoot a 96. He could shoot an 88. He's probably not straying too far the other way. Mitch has the widest range I've ever seen. He can shoot a 120 skull. Every chip is just miserable to play with on Saturday. You go out and play with him on Monday, he'll shoot an 83, and he's just a, a legit, like, where did this come from? I used to be so good. I broke 80 twice, maybe three summers ago. And I thought I was going to effing qualify for tours and tournaments. And I haven't gotten to that point since. So I'd say B Mitch, JP's the most consistent. And then me and Mitch just depends on who you see on a given day. Wow. Um, If you won the masters and you got to host the champions dinner, what would be your main dish? Um, 
I love coming on your podcast and making me feel <laughs> so important. And you just like ask me a bunch of questions. I just get to ramble. So I appreciate this. My main dish. Whew, I don't know. Like, I like, this is, I'm so boring. I like fajitas. I would just fajitas <laughs> and then dessert. I would do a, a chocolate milkshake. I have, I think I've in the upper 1% in terms of people who consume milkshakes in this world. And I'm considering myself a connoisseur of chocolate milkshakes with a little malt and some whipped cream and some chocolate sauce. So give me a steak fajita with some good onions, peppers, pico de gallo, sour cream, guacamole, all the works, some good flour tortillas, corn tortillas, depending on your preference. Cap it off with some chocolate milkshake and then we're ready to go play in the Masters. Abe Answer would be a big fan of you, the Mexican guy, <laughs> Carlos Ortiz. They would love you. Oh, they would all be at my table. We'd be having a great time doing tequila shots, margaritas, frozen, etc. They'd love you. Uh, <laughs> now, if you were on tour, would you be a bigger club twirl guy? Like after a great shot, you you give the club twirl, or would you be the big like pump your fist after a clutch putt guy? I love club twirls. I uh, maybe four or five years ago, as I was kind of getting into golf, I looked up how to club twirl. You got to get in between your pointer finger and your thumb. Yeah. You flick it. You I let it roll down. I was watching a feature and... on it today. There's a whole art to it. I mean, I yeah. was, yeah. It's like putting your sword away in the holster. You twirl right. and put it down. Um, I love it so much. So I think fist pumps, I think after a putt, it's kind of cool. Just act like it's business as usual. You drain yeah. a 30-footer and you just kind of like, yeah, that's that's just what I do. But a club twirl, you hit a good eight iron into the green within seven feet, club twirl during it while the ball is in the air. It makes a nice little divot and rolls back. I think that's the way to go. Now, the last question, the Swift 7, would you rather see Ricky Fowler win the career Grand Slam or see the Washington football team win a Super Bowl? Oh, my God. That's like choosing between my hypothetical children. Um, <laughs> the Super Bowl would be so good for my career. But Ricky just is so likable, and he's such in a bad place right now. Seeing him just come out of nowhere, rise like a phoenix from the ashes, and win all four majors – I mean, at this point, I'd be surprised if he won the frickin' Travelers in Connecticut. If you tell me he's going to come back, Jordan Spieth style, and knock off all four majors, I think I would take that. Because, you know, Washington fans care about them, whether they're two in, what's the new game? Two and two 15. Two and 15, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, they care no matter what, so I think my career is okay. But if Ricky won the majors, all four, oh my god, I would be in cloud nine. True fan. I like it. I like it. All right, Pete, trivia time. You're two for two on these. You've done yeah. really, really well. <laughs> We got draft theme trivia this time. You know the drill, 90 seconds or three strikes. So since 2016, can you tell us the six Washington football first-round picks and what college they attended? He's working already. He's yep. working already. Right. He definitely knows this. <laughs> uh, he, 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 let's see what he can do. I'll go in order here. 2016, <laughs> that's Doxon from TCU. That mm -hmm. is correct. 2017, John Allen from Alabama. Yep. 2018, Deron Payne from Alabama. The Alabama wall, yes. 2019, Dwayne Haskins, pick 15, Ohio State. Then they traded with the Colts to get to pick 26, Montez Sweat. 2020. Where did Montez Sweat go? Oh, Mississippi State. Excuse well done. Me. Correct. Yep. Forget that. that. And then 2020, I have a lot of time here. Oh, hello. His name is Chase Young. He played at <laughs> Ohio State. Easy. 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 Wow, that there was – you go. You know, Pete – I. I, I thought it might be easy, but some of these trivia questions, I mean, people just freeze because they think it'd be so easy. And then they sit there and they're like, I don't know who was, but you, we had, as Chris usual, Miller on, what park. is it a month ago or so now we had C mill on and we asked him, can he name, I think it was maybe what, six eight, of the it eight was, or eight of the 10 
Carolina players, players in the NBA. And he got like two, but like he missed the biggest of all of them. It was just what I'm saying. Yeah. You get caught up on a guy and before you know it, 45 seconds are gone. And yeah, we asked Joe sweating. B to stick, stick it in the NBC Sports Washington family. We asked Joe B the first time we had him on uh, an Ovechkin question. Now the second time we had him, he ran through an Ovi question. But the first time he struck out in 30 seconds with all three strikes. So yeah. it's, you know what, it's, it's not that easy to do. So pat yourself on the back and open up another Modelo or another Long Island <laughs> IC and enjoy the rest of your evening because you, sir, are three for three. He's Juan yeah. Soto. He just comes on the pod and gets hits. That's all he does on it's trivia. A, it's easy. Uh, <laughs> I see we have seven minutes left, so I won't keep you that long. But two questions back to you guys. Number one, who is your most recurring guest? Has anyone touched four appearances? Uh, you can answer quickly. No, uh, no. No, you and C-Mill are both three. three. We have Let's a go. thing going where we promise C-Mill all the time that he'll be the first to the next plateau. So it's not going to be you. Sorry. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> and then – I want each of your picks, you can agree or not, who's, and, you know, don't say me because I'm a nobody, who's been the coolest one for you personally to have on your show? Ooh, that's a good question. Boy, great question. Uh, Pete, honestly, just because I love you so much and our conversations are so great, no, I always no. enjoy it. I love Steve <laughs> no. Sands. I love Steve Sands, too. There Adam Sands, yeah. on was, that was a great one. Um, let's see, Orlovsky was good, too. That was I love that Orlovsky. Was he yeah. was he was good a good one. one. Um, um, you know, the one I've gotten a lot of positive feedback was was uh, we had Mike Lupic on for like fifteen minutes. He was super quick, but we got to like a bunch of different topics, and and he was he was cool. So that was, that was a good I read a lot I, of his books growing up. The, yeah. the one that I enjoyed the most, I think, was Jermaine Carter Jr. So he's not taking the NFL quite by storm yet. He's not a Pro Bowler, but like he had a really good start last year with the Matt Rule Panthers team as a starting linebacker for the first time. And he was a lot of fun. Like we went into some college talk, some NFL talk, uh, some like real life NFL talk. He was breaking down the Super Bowl for us because we had him the week before the Super Bowl. That one was a really yeah, fun episode. And he and I overlapped at Maryland for a year. Um, but I don't know that we said 10 words to each other because I work with the football program. So I did see him every day. But just, you know, everything going on. That was like the most I'd ever spoken to him. And like it was, it was a yeah. really fun one overall. That was a good one. Yeah. Uh, brief fun fact. I lived with a Maryland safety Denzel Conyers and and oh, also yeah. I lived with Derwin Gray, a big tackle, and I partied a couple times with Jermaine Carter. He was incredibly energetic <laughs> and very cool. So it didn't it doesn't surprise me to hear that he's a good podcast guy. Matt Turner, he's, another one. Matt Turner, we had the goalkeeper from the New England Revolution. Only wow. soccer episode we've done. I'm a soccer guy. He went to my high school. We're at alum in the same high school. Um, so that one was a lot of fun too. If you good. could interview Pete, if you could interview anybody on your pod, I mean anybody, who, who do you who do you think it would be? If you could talk to somebody for 20, 25 minutes. Van Gogh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Van Gogh or Gandhi, because I split it between 10 minutes of each of them. Um, F. Like, this is just a random one I'm pulling out of my ASS because, you know, you guys just love flinging impossible questions sure. at me with no preparation. Gilbert Arenas was an incredibly important mm. athlete in my childhood. I went to a bunch of his games where he dropped 50 and would turn around and put his arms up during buzzer beaters. And he seems just completely wild. Of course, you know, the backstory. So yeah. just asking him everything from what was it like to be the Habashi to how was it like bringing a gun into an NBA locker room? I just think that'd be very cool to get inside the mind of Gilbert Arenas. So that is my uh, instant answer to your question. Gilbert's good. I think Al Michaels would be mine. If we could get mm. anybody, the stories Ooh. from that man would be, uh, yeah. 
That'd be that dude. Be NFL NFL people just have the most incredible Jay Gruden. I think like a Jay Gruden unfiltered just to get the scoop on how hectic it is to work for the Washington football team. I think that'd be another one too. He's funny. He's very candid and he's got, I'm sure a hundred tales about Dan Snyder intervening here, Bruce Allen coming to work this way. Just so many things that he could probably spill. Oh, Jay Gruden. And if you could ever get Frank Caliendo to go with Jay Gruden, because when Caliendo does John, he sounds like Jay and it's so yeah. scary. And if they were together, I'm, it'd be amazing. I'm dropping JP from my golf foursome. Jay Gruden is in the golf foursome. Jay Gruden, Santana, Ricky, and me. JP, you can go, you know, kiss my butt and you're done for. You can <laughs> you pick go. us up and be our DD. And Pete, before we go, last question, you're, that the Masters, what is your favorite golf hole on that course? Because, I mean, the back nine is just, it's iconic. There are so many good ones. So what, do, what would you say is your favorite hole? I think 13 with just the, you can, you know, hit a drive straight and try and keep it up to the top of that fairway for the par five. You can try and hit a massive draw. You got the creek in front of it. You have the bushes, the azaleas behind. I think it's a very fun hole. So 12, of course, you got to survive there. Yeah. When you get to 13, I just think it's that just camera angle, seeing how hard it hooks to the left is always intriguing to me. I love number 13 at Augusta. I'm with you. 13 is the best. And then the best hole location, I think, in golf is Sunday at 16. When that ball trickles down that hill, baby. Oh, oh, oh my God. So many two footers for birds just slowly inching their way towards it. The best. The best. Well, Pete, Pete, I can't really pit. Pete, we appreciate you joining us, man, uh, for some Masters, for some NFL Draft. It was great having you. Well done on the trivia. You're three for three now. Yeah, I, I love the trivia. You guys are amazing hosts. I wish you continued success. And after C. Mills does his fourth hit, PJ, you send me a text. We'll do number four over here. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. See you, Pete. Thanks, dudes. Well, that was Pete Haley. I think that's what you were trying to say there. I was Jay. trying to I was trying to say <laughs> Pete appreciates you and I kept slipping over it, but uh, I finally got it out there in the end. Always good seeing Pete though, man. I, I mean, look, we've been fortunate to have some great, great guests on this podcast, but Pete's our guy. I mean, he's our age, you know, covering the Washington football team. Whenever we get a chance to have him on the pod, it's always that's not to say that he's fun. not a great guest. He's He's not the he's not the name that is Mike Greenberg that I you know mentioned during our interview, but right. he is a very fun guest all the time. He does a lot of great work for NBC Sports Washington, whether it's his uh, well pre-COVID and hopefully soon to be post-COVID, whether it's his parking lot hits where he goes up to interview fans uh, at tailgates out at FedEx Field, whether it's the podcast, whether it's you know written content during the course of the week, Swiss Army Knife at NBC Sports Washington underutilized more Pete Haley is always a good thing always his interviews his interviews have been some of my like I seriously meant that when we've had him on they've been great this one was no different hopefully everybody enjoyed it but uh look I'm glad he enjoyed the questions there was a lot we threw at him that I know we had to throw right on the spot but the the UCLA said that's you just don't think about it just just go just go now you got to think about formulating an opinion otherwise you end up sounding like Skip Bayless but uh, that's an opinion-based question. If it's a, if it's a question that has a specific answer, like who would you want to interview? Who would be your uh, threesome to play golf with? That stuff, just quick, because that's what your true gut instinct is. If you thought about it, you're gonna overthink it. You're gonna start saying random stuff, and that's it. So quick, it's better quick. He complained, it but it, it's better for him in the end. <laughs> but then it's tough, you know. Like he flipped around some of that stuff on us, and he was like, "Who would you want to golf with if you're with the Masters?" And I'm like, 
I, you know, like I was trying to think of like an actor or who would be fun, like Mark Wahlberg, just because I know how much he plays golf, but he's not really one of my favorite actors yeah. out there. I don't know if The Rock has ever picked up a golf club in his life, but he'd probably I mean, he's, break he's, a lot he's of them. He's got a tequila. That's true. He's got a tequila line. I mean, he does everything. The, the man does it all. And he just seems like a fun guy. If you ever he watched would. old WWE stuff and some of the stuff he's done and said, it's just incredible. All-time but great talent the, uh, in terms of everything. The all-time great games that I've seen, it had he flipped around on us, I was ready for it. Because I was thinking about it. I'm like, that UCLA-Gonzaga game, when a game like that ends, you know, you're just, like, so fired up. You can't sleep. You're just on such an adrenaline high. I watched like, it again. They replayed game. it on CBS Sports right after, and I watched the whole game again. It was so, so good. And, look, my top three, honestly, could have been all March Madness games just because – that product, like, of college, of one and done, like, every game in the tournament being a game seven produces, like, the best. And that's why in all these other professional sports, you know, football is one and done, too, but there obviously nearly aren't as Different. many games. And NHL, NBA, MLB, they're all series. But uh, I was trying to think, um, and look, the Boise State, Oklahoma will forever be much like Gonzaga, UCLA, just in the sense that even though UCLA by no means is an underdog, they were an 11 seed. They should not have been with Gonzaga as close as they were. And just how both game finishes with Boise statue, the hook and ladder and Statue of Liberty, and then Suggs half court shot, ridiculous. And then the baseball games, the Indians Cubs definitely crossed my mind, but uh Man, Cardinals, Rangers, and just hearing Great Joe game. Buck's call, we'll see you tomorrow night. We'll always live in my mind. That was such a good baseball. But Gonzaga, UCLA, Joe, I really – that might have been the greatest I don't think it's, game I've ever I don't seen. even think it's just because it happened recently. It was genuinely almost a perfect game. The only thing that I would say would have made it better and would have left no doubt as far as it being the greatest game of all time – is if it happened in the title game itself. Oh, That's yeah. the only thing is if right. it was one round later because you had a record 19 lead changes. You had – and it wasn't like the UCLA-Michigan game the round prior. That was just a bad game. Oh, UCLA-Michigan, just because it's a close game, doesn't mean it's a good right. game. And Abilene, Christian, and Texas, just, same thing. It was a bad game, it but it was close. Ugly possessions, missing right. shots, close game, not a good game. This game, 19 lead changes, close game, oh good God. game. The scoring was in the 90s in the end. Overtime, buzzer beater in overtime. It's Gonzaga, UCLA. You have the one seed in the 11. You have the role reversal of the 11 seed is actually the most storied franchise in college basketball history. And the one seed has never won anything. And it, just everything about it. It was perfect to me, in every which way. The most telling thing is that Gonzaga all season before playing Baylor had beaten every team they had played by double digits except West Virginia, and Suggs got injured at halftime. UCLA never trailed by more than seven points in that entire game. That and it, there was a point you. in that game where you could you felt that it was on the edge. I texted you and I texted Ryan Wormelli, and um, it, it was on the edge. It was maybe halfway through the second half. Ayai like seven or eight minutes left. Break. Yeah. Around there, Ayai had a break, and he had Nemhard to his left, and he had Kispert to his right on opposite wings, wide open for three. It was kind of like a three-on-one-and-a-half because there was a defender in front of Ayai and one trying to tail Ayai. 
he went for a running floater, low percentage, off balance, hit the back eye, or never had a chance. If he would have kicked out to either Kispert or Nemhard wide open, you like their chances of making that. And then all of a sudden, that would have capped off, uh, I believe it would have been a 7-0 run for Gonzaga, 10-point lead now. You know Mick Cronin's calling timeout. That's the point where the game could have gone one of two ways, where UCLA could have just been like, ugh we've given this our perfect best shot and now we're down double digits or they could have kept it closer, which is what happened because a missed, they get the board, they come down and tiger Campbell bangs a three from the corner. And all of a sudden what should have been probably a 10 point game is now a four point game. And then the rest is history. I could just tell honestly from the first TV timeout, second TV timeout, I just knew UCLA was going to hang with them the whole way. The Bama game and the Michigan game, those games I walked away from and I were like, they weren't better than those teams. They just got lucky, whether it was the free throw shooting and Michigan missing layups, Bama missing threes, whatever it was. But they played as their A++ game against Gonzaga. But you could just tell that UCLA, it's what the Pac-12 did all tournament. They just, they hit certain shots at certain stretches in game where you need to hit shots that just are kind of mini daggers throughout a yeah. game. And UCLA, just every time you thought Gonzaga, they hit a three, they hit a layup, they would go on their run. UCLA would respond every time. And Gonzaga, the quality of shot they were getting, I mean, they were really getting whatever they wanted. And choosing and Hawkins and Riley and Tiger Campbell were hitting tough shots. Mm-hmm. And you're like, they can't keep this and, up. And, and, they that's why and they I just felt, kept keeping it up. That's why I felt that had that possession gone differently with Ayayi, I genuinely think it would have tilted towards a Gonzaga blowout because you went from playing a perfect first half to still being down one at halftime on that Kispert jump shot. But you know what? You got, you regather in the extended halftime because obviously final four longer commercial breaks, you gather yourself. Then you come back out of that. And now all of a sudden, halfway through that second half, you would have looked up at the scoreboard. And after all you've accomplished that whole game, you look up and you say, we're down double digits now. And Gonzaga's hot. And we're just making a lot of contested shots. I think psychologically they could have fallen off a cliff after that. But again, they just would not miss a shot. Contested, uncontested. There was one where Juzang almost looked like he shot it like oh, literally directly over the top of his head where it almost looked like a throw-in in soccer. And I remember saying to myself, there's no way this is going down. There's no, oh, oh, good shot. Like it was one of those where you're like, no, 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 no. Oh, okay. And they were hitting all of them. So yeah. there's nothing you could say negative about UCLA, negative about Gonzaga. Both teams deserve to win that game. Uh, and it literally, like the old cliche, it's, you know, who's got the ball last? And you thought it was going to be UCLA having the ball last to send it to a second overtime. But then Jalen Suggs just speeds down the court and flash why he was a highly sought after football recruit at Ohio State and Georgia, got across midcourt in a hurry. And then with the most confident hats, three court, I mean, half, halfway between the three court line and half court. It was, he ended up getting a jumper. It wasn't even a heave no. because he got, he got close enough to where it was like Steph Curry type of range. Right. And he just halfway through that ball flight, he started running to the table. And like, he, he knew as soon as that ball left his hands, he knew. 
Think about how good of a coach, though, Mark Few is, that Gonzaga has not been in that situation all season long. They've never played in a game that close. But they knew with three seconds left to still run some sort of a play because Suggs swooped around, caught the ball, got himself going with the full steam of momentum. He had a timeout and didn't call it. I mean, that that tells you that's Mark Few. I mean, to prepare his team for that shows you how good of a coach he is, how prepared they were for that. I'm glad Gonzaga won because obviously we got to see Gonzaga Baylor. The only part of me that would have wanted to see UCLA Baylor is just to see the Juzang Mitchell matchup. You had the best score going in the tournament against the best defender in the tournament. Um, but look, UCLA would have had to play like they did against Gonzaga. And we saw kind of some effects Gonzaga had against Baylor. Baylor was the better team. They deserved to win the game. But Gonzaga, just from the start, just didn't – you could see that game definitely mm-hmm. took something out of them. So if it took something out of Gonzaga, you know UCLA would have been hurting. But, uh, look, you were on Baylor all year. You said they were number one before COVID. And if they got back to that status, they were the best team. And, uh, Joe, they went from being a team that I thought was very good to now being maybe the best college team I've I, that's seen. That's what I was going to say next. There. That's what I was going to get to. Because, for look, every we great were, for... college team has an elite offense, but mm-hmm. they combine it with elite defense, and their guards are just – I mean, they Absolutely. bring Flagler off the bench. Like, Absolutely. it's not fair how good it, it was. It was an incredible are. team, and that's what I was going to get to next for all the talk that there would have been about Gonzaga being the greatest or one of the greatest teams of all time, had they completed the unbeaten season, we should have those same conversations about Baylor just because they had two losses in the loss column. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have those conversations because you know, damn well that those losses might not have been losses if they didn't have the COVID pause because coming right right out of that COVID pause, they barely beat a two and 21 or whatever it was, Iowa state team. They lost to Kansas. They lost to Oklahoma State. And Scott Drew came out and said, you know, he admitted, like, we don't have legs in the second half right now. It, it wrecked us. And had they not had that, we very well could have had an unbeaten versus unbeaten title game. And we would be talking about Baylor as the greatest team of all time or one of the greatest teams of all time. Just because they have two losses in the loss column doesn't change that. We should absolutely be having that conversation. Now, obviously, I am 23 years old. You are 24 years old, I believe. Uh, none of us saw any of the UCLA teams, the 76 Indiana yeah. team. You know, we saw none of those, so we can't engage in debate. But for those who are older or are at least a generation above us where they're 50 and their dad or so highlights, you know, they are more exposed to those teams – you could have that conversation because Baylor absolutely would deserve to be in it. And just to, to your point, the defense they play, the shots they hit, the all-around versatility of the team, they could beat you inside or outside. They could beat you in a slugfest 55-50 to 50 game because of their defense. They could go ahead and beat you in a high-paced 95-90 to 90 game. They're so versatile in a one-and-done tournament where you have, except for – the gap between second and third round and then elite eight and final four, you got 48 hours and you don't know exactly what the matchup's going to be. So you got to turn on a dime depending on who you're playing against. When you're that versatile, you got a shot to win it all because if they would have hypothetically had the bracket been different had Loyola Chicago in the second round in the way that Illinois could not adjust to that and had trouble with it, 
because Baylor's so versatile and the different looks they could show you because of the talent they have, they would have had no problem with that game. They would have come out probably still won that game by 15 because they could have taken their game and shoved it right back at them with the slow pace and the defense because they have all of that talent all around. And there's nobody on that team who you could really look at and say, that guy doesn't, doesn't look like he belongs, but they all look like they belong. They're all freak athletes. They're all talented. They all play offense. They all play defense. Nobody had a weakness. It was a perfect team. It was a great team. You know, I told you coming into the tournament that Vill- 2018 Villanova was probably the best team I've seen. Brunson, DiVincenzo, Bridges, Pascal, Spellman. But this team, uh, the way they pick – I mean, it was amazing. Think about the national championship game. So you had Kispert, who was first-team All-American. You have Suggs, who's going to be a top-three pick, could be number one. You have Jared Butler, who was the Big 12 player of the year. And the guy that stole the whole show in the Final Four in the championship game was Davion Mitchell. And, uh, I mean, my God, is but he good. But it stop there. I mean, you go uh, – Well, their front line, Vital, Vidal, Maceo Bamba, T hitting threes, yeah. Flo Thamba, which is just store brand Mo Bamba, like – all those guys, they had it all. They, they were really, really good. Baylor, you know, I just – a lot of it, again, was because it's Baylor. And I'm just like, when they get to that stage, what are they going to look like? And it was that, but it was also because it, it was the big unknown of just would they get back to what they were after COVID. And really the only scare they had was that Villanova game and it had Gillespie been playing – who knows what yeah. would have happened. But after that, I mean, they never looked back and, and they you know are what? worthy champions. This is, I think, and I think I had mentioned it last week. If I could construct a perfect tournament, this would have been it because you had a record number of upsets in all the early rounds. It was a lot of fun in those games. You know, you have a team like Oral Roberts making a run to the sweet 16. You had that, but at the end of the day, when the dust settled, you had the preseason number one, and the preseason number two, who had been on a collision course since December 5th, when that game, when they were supposed to play in the first place, got canceled. So at the end of the day, we had all that tournament fun. But when it came down to it, we got a true, true champion. The two best teams are going at it. And a funny, quirky stat on that, which I could not fathom. And it's there's probably no rhyme or reason to it. It just kind of is what it is. Five times now it's happened where the preseason number one faces the preseason number two, not the number one overall tournament seed against the number two overall tournament seed. That's happened. But the preseason AP number one, preseason AP number two have now five times met in the title game. The number two team is five and oh, just a random, you know, quirky thing. Like it's not like that should be a trend. It just kind of has organically happened over the span of 45 years, but a weird quirky stat that I saw the other day. That is wow. But uh, look, congrats to Baylor. They uh, they were really, really. I'm watching that game, and I'm like, they can't hit that three. And there it goes, number there it three, goes. right in the basket, and just defending. And every year, right after midnight on New Year's Eve into New Year's Day, I always tweet out my uh, my championship picks for you know NBA, MLB for like the course of the year. Yeah, these are going to be 2021's champions, and I I'm usually lucky to get one or two right. I'm not going winless this year because at on Baylor. January 1st at 12.02 a.m., Baylor was on that line for NCAA basketball. So there you and, go. And uh, college basketball, too, has the harshest end to a season because once one shining moment's over, you're like, that's wow, it. That's, that's it. Like, that's season's it. over. Done. You know, all the other ones, you see the teams holding up the trophy and getting interviewed 
one shining moment, and then it's a bye. You, you think it's like the Super Bowl? You're carrying it on the Super Bowl's host network for about 40 minutes or so after the game ends. And then after that, you flip over to ESPN. Chris Berman is always on it with that post-Super Bowl sports center. And that goes until like midnight. So you're covered for th- like two more hours for the Super Bowl. Um, World Series, same thing. You go to the studio, Kevin Burkhardt, A-Rod, David Ortiz. You're going for another hour and a half. Mm-hmm. It's it. One shining moment plays, boom, your local news hits. And that's it. And then no more until November. And I can't wait for November. Should be great. Absolutely. But we got the Masters coming up. We're recording this Wednesday. We got the Masters tomorrow starting. Joe, I mean, this Pete was saying, I, and, and I'm with them. I mean, Masters Sunday is my second favorite day of the year. I mean, the first two days of the tournament, I consider one day. So that's my my favorite day. Masters Sunday, too. And then opening days in the top five, which we just had. First day of the NFL drafts in the top five, that's coming up. So this is truly the best time of the year. Um, I'm going chalky this week. I like Thomas to win it, and uh, it's it's because he's playing well. But the biggest reason I like it, and uh, I know you've heard the story. So tragically, there was an Alabama super fan. His name is Luke Ratliff. Uh, Luke Ratliff, he passed away from COVID-19. He was 23 years old. And he was, I mean, the biggest Bama basketball fan. He went to all the games, home, road, SEC tournament, March Madness. And it was just one of those things that you see on Twitter. And it was almost like a Kobe level shock. Like, oh my God, he, he, like, it can't be. There's no way. So Justin Thomas being a Bama guy, um, you know, he won the players championship and his grandfather passed away earlier this year. And now with Luke's passing, would not surprise me. I mean, JT's one of the better betting favorites. So because of all that going on, I think Thomas has a real shot this week. This is his sixth time playing the Masters tournament. And uh, he, he's been saying that he, he's finally, he's figured it out. He knows, he, he, he thinks that he really has a strap on things. He's gotten better in his finishes every year. And mm-hmm. uh, he's my pick. Victor Hovland would be another guy to watch out for as well. Colin Morikawa had his moment at the PGA. Wolf had his at the U.S. Open. I think Hovland has his at the Masters. Those three guys have kind of been labeled as the next three young wave coming into golf. Hovland was the low am in Augusta two years ago, and uh, so he knows the course, and nobody's talking about him. flying under the radar. So those would be my two guys uh, to bet this week. And I'm right there with you on the JT pick for obviously all of the star aligning reasons, but also for the golf reasons. You mentioned that he's been figuring out Augusta uh, going back to 2016, tied for 39th, then tied for 22nd, then tied for 17th, tied for 12th. He improved on that again in November. So he's been getting better every single time that he has gone on to play at Augusta. And I think that trend continues playing really good golf stars align. He's really close with Tiger and obviously Tiger going through everything that he's going through in recovering from the accident just would be a very good story and moment to see Justin Thomas win it um, just to throw somebody else out there. So we're not talking exclusively about JT. Uh, John Rahm has crossed my mind. You and I have talked about this off the air, getting to the course late in the aftermath of the birth of his child the other day uh, and not having those practice rounds could hurt him. But the same token, uh, he now has three consecutive top 10 masters finishes. He knows and plays very well at Augusta. And the thing about Augusta is 
know, the reason that Tiger won in 19 and, and always is in contention. And then guy like Louis Oosthuizen is always seemingly around the top 10 at Augusta. You know the course and you're good at the course. You're always going to be good at the course and you're always going to be in contention. And it's obviously still very early on or relatively early on in Rom's career. But to have three consecutive top 10 finishes, we know that in November, if he didn't have that one awful hole where he ended up left into the rough and then had a shot that looked like it was straight out of a cartoon where it hit like three tree trunks and then darted into a bush. Uh, he would have been right there up around the lead, the top by DJ, not quite at DJ, but close to DJ. Uh, so coming off of that just six months ago, the thing holding me back would be the fact that he has no practice, but again, because his familiarity with it and how well he's played there, don't be shocked if John Robbins and it'd be a little repeat of Danny Willett from six years ago now where Willett had had his kid of, or a few weeks before or the week of, and then went on to win the masters. John Rom now a new Papa goes gets a chance to get his first. So, and I was listening to Rom too. And, you know, just listening to him and watching him, Rom was labeled early on as in his career as a guy that was like such a hothead. He'd really, if something would go wrong for him, he'd really, I mean, it would kind of shake him. And in golf, it's like playing quarterback. You throw an interception, you got to wipe the mm-hmm. slate clean And in golf, you're going to hit bad shots. You're going to miss putts. You got to just keep moving through that stuff. And Ron would really let that stuff weigh him down. He's been a lot better at that. And just watching him get interviewed today, I mean, he said that since all that's been on his mind was his kid being born, he hasn't thought about golf at all. And usually when you're preparing for majors, you're analyzing every little thing, X, Y, Z. You're almost overthinking it. So the clean slate could very well help Rom. You mentioned how good his track record is at the course. So him and Kepka are the two that I'm intrigued. Brooks, obviously, just with that injury, probably the worst possible course to play at because of the hills and just how slopey it is. That's what everybody says. And I was lucky enough to go to a practice round at the Masters. It's true. You don't realize how slopey. That whole course is uh, when you're walking it, the TV doesn't do it justice. So hopefully Brooks is healthy because we know if, if he's healthy and playing well, he'll be right in the conversation. And another story going into the week is going to be Rory McIlroy. I mean, he had a good showing in November, not quite near the top of the leaderboard, but up there. Uh, it's been 10 years since his meltdown at the Masters and a chance now to complete the career Grand Slam. So that's another name to watch. Uh, Shoffley is a name you and I have tossed around. Finau is a name we've tossed around. It seems like there's a lot of guys who really do have a shot at this. You know, I feel like going into last year or November's Masters, everybody was kind of honed in on two or three guys. Um, going into last year's PGA, and, you know, we were honed into a couple guys. This week, I've seen different TV and online experts. Wide open. Wide open. I've seen at least a dozen different winners yep. pick. It's absolutely what we've been talking about this now for five minutes. We haven't even mentioned Jordan Spieth and or DeChambeau. Incredible, or DeChambeau. <laughs> I don't think DeChambeau, I, I still don't think he can mash the match. No, we haven't mentioned DJ either. And how he I'm just going to get, we haven't mentioned any of these guys. Yeah. And we've mentioned all guys who have been mentioned to be in contention. So it's wide open. It's going to be, as it always is, a very fun four days. And uh, I really could be. I mean, at the end of Sunday, would you be at all surprised if it's not even one of the dozen or so guys we've been talking about? Oh, no, not. Look, the Masters is the tournament. I mean, you've seen guys like Charles Schwartzel have won it. 
Danny Willett have won it. Angel Cabrera have won it. If you're good on the PGA Tour, you play this course every year just as much as these big-name guys do. Guys like Lee Westwood and Kevin Na and Matt Kuchar have been coming here for years, know the course. And look, all you got to do is put together four hot, uh, four great days of golf. And it's that's the best about this tournament is the field shortened. It's the best in the world. And because they play it every year, it's it's familiar to everyone. Look, Bernhard Longer, 60 years old, and he's <laughs> always in contention every year. Fred Couples on a Friday seems like he's always towards the top. So that's what makes it so great. If Phil avoids the big number with how well he knows the course. Joe, the weather at Augusta Monday, yesterday, and today, Wednesday, they were saying, all the reporters have been saying how beautiful it's been in Augusta. And Thursday traditionally is a day where the Masters usually really tries to show its teeth. They make it really hard. So guys are like, oh, yeah, like we're battling for a green jacket. This is a major. And they're saying that there is some rain supposed to come in Friday and Saturday. So, so many people are talking about the importance of Thursday's round and how different the course will look to some of these guys who don't have experience at it. I heard Adam Scott, Phil Mickelson, um, Dustin Johnson, Rory talk about, yeah, that course is, if you're not hitting it in the right spots, a lot of these guys are going to be shaking their heads thinking, how did the ball roll off the ground? How did it go in the bunker? Mm -hmm. So tomorrow's round, Thursday's round, you got to start watching right away because it could, it could make or break a lot of people. And, And with that in mind, a lot of the, you know, talking heads on TV and, and, and again on Twitter, online. It seems like the general consensus as far as a projected winning total is somewhere between 8 and 10 under. So we're not going to get that 20 under that we saw from DJ no, in November. No, no, no. Don't be going into the Masters expecting that to happen. And they're saying, look, it might not even, the winner might not even crack 10 under. I'm thinking 12 under would, would probably be good enough to win it. But like you said, a lot of people – I mean, they're thinking eight, nine, ten under mm. might be more than more than enough. So we'll see what happens. Joe, trivia time. And uh, I mean, a lot of different ways we could have gone with this. We got baseball starting up. We got the Masters, obviously. We got NFL draft coming up. But I went college basketball be- for you because, uh, look, one of the all-time greats, Roy Williams, retired. We talked about Baylor Gonzaga and Mark Few and all the wins he's accumulated in his career. But just the real simple question I wanted for you. Uh, so of the simple, top, yeah, sure it's going to be simple. Of the top ten coaches of all time, all time winningest coaches in college basketball history. Can you give me seven of the ten? Seven of the ten winningest college basketball coaches of all time. Correct. All right, go ahead. Uh, give me Wooden. One. All right. Um, no, John Wooden is not one of the all-time winningest coaches. Really? Yeah. Actually. Wow. He's 30, 664. Oh, wow. I would have never realized that. That's incredible. Um, all right, strike one. I thought that was a, I thought that was a layup. Yeah, I did too. Um, and then I'm looking, I'm like, no, Wooden's not here. Keep scrolling. Wow. Wow. All right. Shashevsky. There's one, yep. Uh Bayheim. Two. Um, Roy. Three. Dean. Four. Um, Bill Self? Bill Self, no, he's 19. Okay. 
So you got two strikes. You need three more coaches. Yeah. So you got to be careful. You got 40 seconds to work with. Yeah, I can't, I can't just run through this again. And I got to think. Um, would it not be in there through me? That was um, – hmm. Well, Mark Few's been at Gonzaga for 20 years now. And yeah. it went a lot of games, but it's not – he's still, he still got to be there longer. Uh, Coach Knight has to be on there. He is. Okay. Uh, so you need two more. You got 15 seconds left. Mm. Wow. Um, goodness, some of the old-time Indiana coaches. Oh, uh, Adolph Rupp has to be on there. Rupp, and you got one more at the buzzer. Oh, my goodness. All right. Uh, the last one I'll give you is just going to be Mark Few because it's topical. Not Mark Not Few. Not in there. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, all right, so you got one through five, Coach K, Beheim, Roy, Knight, and Smith. Six was Jim Calhoun, oh. 877. Then you got Rupp at seven. The Huggy Bear, Bob Huggins, is eight. Huggy Bear is on the list, and is. Wooden is not. I would have, PJ. Not only I, I is Wooden not on the list, Huggins years. has like 130 more wins than Wooden. And uh, never in a million years that I've got Eddie that. Sutton at Oak State is nine eight oh six, and then uh, one I didn't even know, Cliff Ellis, number ten with eight. Never heard that name. Huggy Bear would have never crossed my mind at all. No shot. Calhoun, I think if I took long enough, right, I might have gotten to Old Big East and thought about it. Right, Calipari is right there at twelve. Uh, yeah, I, figured, I figured he wouldn't be there so yet, too young. The difference between him and Few, as far as why I guess the more modern guy, um, is just because I know that at Gonzaga he's had some ridiculous seasons, like like this one where he's really racked up the wins. And on the flip side, Cal has had years like this year where he's had down years and missed tournaments. So. That was why I went with few over Cal in terms of that, but either way, I was wrong. So, of all the names on this list that I'm looking at, it it's absolutely shocking me. Dana Altman is uh, number 24 on the list with 690 wins. Where's Mark Turgeon? <laughs> uh, Mark Turgeon, have not seen. Lefty Drizel's actually 11th with 786. Is he really? Yeah, he's got a lot. Uh, you mentioned Mark Few. He's 36, 630. Jay Wright, 612. Turge, I have. No, <laughs> uh, oh, Mark Turgeon, 85, uh, 85, 471 wins. Can he get to 500 next year, Joe? Can he get 400 wins out of that team? 471. 29? It no. could be close-ish. No. I mean, Maryland on paper could legitimately be a national, national title contender next year, but not with 29 wins. No shot. I mean, they'll in the Big Ten, they'll, they'll lose probably a total of 10 games next year at – if, if it's a bad year, 10, if it's a good year, six. And then the term, there's no way they get to 29. We'll see. All right, what you got for me? I assume Masters. Right, years, it's Masters, and it's just a little bit of a recall here. Give me the top five, which means six players because two were tied for fifth. So give me the top six golfers from November. Oh, like on the leaderboard. Top six on the leaderboard from November, from the Masters, mm-hmm. from our November's Masters. All right, so we got DJ. Yep. I know Cam Smith and Sung JM were up there. They were tied for second. And then this is where the wheels fall off the bus. Um, I think Rory was the top five, was he? Rory was tied for fifth. He snuck in there with a good Sunday. Kepka was top ten. I bet so you got him. two more, and you're thirty seconds in. 
Oh man, Thomas, I don't think was top five. Rory, let's see. Is there any other big name guys? Shoffley wasn't up there. Cantley wasn't up there. You haven't had any strikes yet, so. Yeah, I remember. I remember M and uh, and Cam Smith. I'll go Justin Thomas. But I don't think he was top five. He was fourth. Was he? Yeah, that's why earlier when we were talking about it, I didn't say. <laughs> I said that he improved ah, in November. Clever. I didn't say what it was. Clever. <laughs> All right, I need one more guy. Yeah, it's. Um. Let's see. You got 20 seconds left. Still two strikes to work with. Mm. Actually, all three strikes to work with. Excuse me. You haven't gotten a strike yet. All right. I'll just name in some guys, but I know they probably won't be right. So Patrick Reed, probably no. Nope. Ted. Uh, yeah. Uh, Cantlay? Nope. And uh, let's just go with uh, Abraham Answer. Nope. Dylan Fratelli of South Africa. Was tied for fifth with Rory McIlroy. Fratelli. I briefly remember that. Okay. All right. Yep. Good Fratelli. Yeah, that was that was a good one. I something tells me I don't think he'll finish top five again. But not 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 on my radar. Was for for DJ running away with it, um, and JT coming in fourth and Rory tying for fifth. After that, it was a wild leaderboard. You had Cam Smith tied for second, Sung Sung JM tied for second. Dylan Fratelli tied for fifth. C.T. Pan tied for seventh. Kepka and Rahm also tied for seventh. Then you had like Corey Connors, Mark Leishman, Hideki Matsuyama. Abraham Answer was tied for 13th. Like it was, you had a very global leaderboard on there. You had Australia, you had South Korea. Leishman's a guy, you know, Leishman's a guy that always plays well at Mm -hmm. Augusta. Leishman. That, you know what? Leishman could be a a top five or top three play. We'll see. I, uh, but. Yeah, I just I can't wait. It's it's always such a wide open tournament, and I mean this year, like you said, I mean usually coming in there's like a trendy trend. Like last year was Deshambo. Yeah. Spieth's trendy this year, but because he won last week, a lot of how we were talking about with it's only Pete, happened twice. Yeah, so uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, it, like to, to your point, in a given year, usually you have a group of six guys that you could pick to win it, typically. And even if it's not one of those six, there's going to be a few other fringe guys that wouldn't surprise you. This year, there's literally about a dozen guys who are picks and then another eight more who wouldn't surprise you. There's a feel of, it's a very casting a wide net. I mean, there's at least 20 guys who, if they won, you look at it and say, oh, yeah, yeah, why not? You know, I'm with you. Well, thanks again to Pete for joining us. Always great talking to him. Man, we covered a lot of – I appreciate that Pete likes the questions. You know, yes. he thinks about it, and then he's like, great question. Then he always gives a great answer, so it was fun. I got to check out that renditions golf course. I've I've heard about it, but uh, if Pete says it's the real deal, then that's worth I, a try. I would have not imagined that that question I asked him would have gone the way it did either that I posed that question. Oh, I totally thought he would have been like, yeah, no, I'm not burning. Absolutely. But not only that he had the confidence to say he could do it, but that he also drunkenly did it at a replica course. I mean, that's just perfect. And that was like not pre-planned, nothing. That was just totally lucky stroke of confidence right there. (laughs) Haley, a man of many talents. All right, Joe, I'll see you uh, next time. Episode 45. We'll see you then.